This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's good and perfect word comes from Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 48, and we'll also be reading out of Acts chapter 1. So Luke 48 through 53. Sorry, 24, 48 through 53. It's not a 48th chapter. Okay. (laughs) Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Good morning. Last week we started by saying, He is risen, and you said, Do you know that that's the way the church greeted each other, not just once a year, but every week as they gathered and they assembled, as a reminder that they were gathering because of the resurrection of Christ. And so as we gather here, we're gathering because of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, that's why the church moved from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday, because the seventh day was set apart as a Sabbath, a holy day, but then Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week, and so the church began to gather on the first day of the week in honor of Jesus' resurrection. So it makes sense that when they would gather, they would say, He is risen, you guys. He's risen indeed. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that? I hope you do, because as we look at this text, we see the fruit of of Jesus' resurrection. That's what I want you to keep in mind, the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. Let's pray before we dive in. Heavenly Father, as we come, as we surround ourselves uh, under your word and, and commit ourselves to the authority of God's word, we pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, unblind our eyes so that we can see. Lord, there is good news here for us, 
good news of all that Jesus has made available. Lord, we are thankful for a Savior who came, who walked amongst us, who obeyed the law perfectly because we couldn't, and he willingly went to a cross we deserved. Lord, we are thankful for our Savior. We're thankful that he truly died in our place, the burial that took place, and Lord, we are thankful for the resurrection of Christ. We're thankful for what that means and and the fact that our Savior did defeat death and hell and the devil, and because he is a victor, we are victors in him. And Lord, we are thankful this morning as we look at the ascension of Christ. And Lord, as we close out a book that we've been studying for more than a year, we are thankful for the good news that we've learned over that year. We're thankful as we have been reintroduced to a Savior many of us are familiar with. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to grow and learn new things as we continue to study the Bible, but we're thankful for the things that we learned over the last year. We're thankful for the way you have taught us who Christ is and and why Christ has come. And so, Lord, now as we look at the power of his ascension and the importance of that ascension, may we walk away changed. May we walk away empowered and strengthened in our faith. Lord, we know that there are many here that are struggling. You know their dilemmas. You know their their wrestling matches. You know their besetting sins. You know the things that are holding them back, discouraging them. I pray that you would free them in the power of Christ. I pray pray that you would use your word. I pray that you would use me, your messenger, to speak your word to your people and that, Lord, we would all be changed. That is our prayer. That is why we gather. We gather to celebrate in the name of Christ, the one who truly changes us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Church, there is nothing better than a good ending. Um, I'm a book reader. Some of you are movie watchers. And whether you're a book watcher or a movie movie watcher or a book reader, um, I got that twisted around, it doesn't matter. Everyone wants a good ending. Now, with books, there's a labor intensiveness to it, isn't there? I, I, you have to get through uh, line by line, chapter by chapter, and work through a book. And that's pretty much what we did as we studied the book of Luke. We, we went line by line, and we went chapter by chapter, and we worked through this. And that, that is intensive. That takes time. And as you work through the many chapters, you're really hoping that there is a happy ending, that there is a a good ending, a rewarding ending that is coming. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Luke. We have been given a a happy ending in the sense that Jesus has resurrected. That's good news. That's that's the providing of hope and joy and stability. And, and, And as we look at that, we still desire more. And that's what we really get right here at the end of Luke in verses 48 through 53. Friends, I want you to see that Luke, in writing this, is offering us to see a pivot that is about to come. A pivot that is about to come. The book ends on a pivot. Because here's the pivot. Jesus has taken a group of men, 12 of them. He spent three and a half years with them. He's taught them. He's instructed them. He's showed them. He's he's performed miracles in front of them. And in that time, he has ultimately told them why he was coming. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, 
and Jesus resurrected and appeared to them, they were fearful. They were cowards. You look at the story at the end of the Bible, and you see men that Jesus has been pouring into for three and a half years, and what's the effect? They're cowards. One betrays him. One denies him. Many are hiding and running and fleeing. Some are standing at a distance. They don't want to be near him, but they want to at least see what's going on. And that's the effect. These men are cowards. But what changes is that these cowards are turned into courageous men for the gospel. The powerless, this is the point, the powerless are turned into the powerful. Can I get an amen to that this morning? That's, that's the good news of the gospel. The powerless are turned into the powerful. And that's what we, we celebrate this morning. That's what we celebrate as we gather here in this church. That the powerless are turned into the powerful. These 12 men become powerful missionaries, and we see the world changed because of them. Now, the reason I had Mark read the very end of Luke with the very beginning of Acts was because it's in those two books we see the pivot. It's interesting to me that Luke ends with a happy occasion of the ascending of the Savior and the joy that the disciples feel because of the promise that's given them that they will be clothed in power. And as that book ends, Luke ends, that's exactly the way Luke opens his second book called The Act of the Apostles. The hope that they will be transformed by the coming of the Holy Spirit and the change that will occur to them, that they will go from powerless to powerful, that these men will be used to change the world. I want you to see the mission that they're on. I want you to see the necessity of the power that's required. I want you to see the worship that is at the center of this mission. Those are the things I want you to see this morning as we wrestle through this change. So let's look at Luke 24, verse 48 through 49. These are Jesus' departing words as he is with his disciples. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, you're also given Jesus' departing words. And in Luke and also in Acts, the word witness is used. The word witness is tied to their mission. But what you don't know is that the word witness there is also tied to their persecution. It's the idea of being martyred. Same biblical word. Being a witness is also about being a martyr. It's about being on mission. And that's how they were going to change the world. They were going to change by losing. Much the same way Jesus changed the world by what appeared to be losing on the cross. But ultimately... What appeared to be losing was really gaining because their power and their strength and their witness would be seen in their tenacity to be faithful to what they declare. So where would that power come from to do that, to be that witness? Look at what it says in verses 48 and 49. You are my witness of these things. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Notice the call to be a witness. A witness of what? A witness of these things, the things that I've told you. The things that you've seen, the miracles that have taken place, most importantly, the crucifixion and the resurrection. You are my witness of these things, he says. And I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you. 
But here's the key. You need to stay in the city until you're clothed with that promise of power. So what's the expectation? The expectation is that these 11 apostles, remember Judas is gone, the 11 remaining of the 12 will be Christ's witnesses of all that had happened. That there is a promise given, and this promise is from the Father, and he will enable them to do their mission. Who is this promise? The Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 says the Holy Spirit is known as the comforter, the one who comes along and aids, the one who holds them up, the one who fills their mouth with the words, the one who does everything. And yet notice the command that they're giving. They're given the command to remain in the city until they're clothed in that power. Friends, I don't know about you, but waiting can be hard, amen? I mean, come on, more people than that. Waiting can be hard. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, as a little boy, I remember the day I was going to get to drive. Waiting to becoming 16, right? And the whole time, my dad said, I don't know if we're going to let you drive at 16. Oh, come on, Dad. I just want to get behind the wheel, right? The waiting seems like forever. Or when you're getting near graduation, my son's about to graduate. Every day just seems grueling to him. Get get this year over with, right? That's a hard time. How about for those of us who are married and and waiting to see your bride come down the aisle? It can be grueling to wait, but it also can can be amazing when you know the outcome. And here's the thing. These men knew the outcome. The outcome of their waiting was power. The outcome of their waiting was to be clothed in the Holy Spirit. The outcome of their waiting was that God was going to use them as his witnesses to change the world. You can just imagine the excitement as they waited. They waited to be clothed in the power. They waited to see the power used by them, in them, through them, to change the world. And I remind you that these men were cowards. They fleed, they denied, they remained silent, they watched from a distance. But these cowards would be turned into the courageous ones that God would use to turn the world upside down. That's the excitement of the message that Jesus is giving. And yet in the midst of Jesus giving this message, I want you to see that he's giving it in the midst of a worship service. See, every time the church, that's the people of God, gather around the Word of God, friends, that's a worship service. It's important for you to know that. Sometimes we think worship is just the music. If you have music without the Word, it's not worship. It's just music. But when you have the Word, it is worship. In fact, they're gathering around the living Word of Jesus Christ. And as they're gathering around the living Word of Jesus Christ, guess what's happening? Jesus is teaching them. He's kind of tightening up the the bolts in their mind and in their hearts. He's he's explaining things to them. In fact, we know this from Acts chapter 1, that as they gather, they're beginning to ask some questions. But where are they doing all of this? Well, we're told at the end of Luke that they go near Bethany. In Acts chapter 1, we're actually told in verse 12 that they go up to Mount of Olives, which is near Bethany. And the reason this is so important is this is a place the disciples would often get away with Jesus. This was a retreat. This was a spiritual retreat with the risen Lord, and God was ministering to them. 
And they were involved in the worship of the Lord as they're gathered there, hearing from him, as he's tightening up the bolts of their theology and straightening out all the things that they need to understand for the mission that they're being called to. And so as Jesus teaches them in verse nine of Acts cha- or verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, we're told the disciples asked an important question. The disciples asked the question, when would the restoration of the kingdom be? They want to know, how's this all going to play out? More importantly, when, Lord? We're ready to go. You just told us we're going to be clothed in power. When's this going to take place? In verse 7, Jesus reminds them, some things aren't for you to know. And Jesus is saying, don't get caught up to when. Just know it's coming. Just know it's coming. Just know that things are really about to change. And it's right as Jesus is doing this that we're told in verse 50, Jesus lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now friends, for many of us, we can just think, well, that's cute, that's nice. Friends, this is a worship service. And what Jesus just did is he pronounced a benediction on them. Now I've been in this church for 18 years and for all 18 years I've been in this church, every worship service ends with a benediction. And I know that it had been going on a lot longer than that. In fact, our church was planted in 1903, and there are things you can see in the history of the liturgy of the church. If you look back through the old paperwork, and you'll see that the, there was a regular benediction that ended every service of this church. Benedictions are important. They're just not empty words that are said to kind of send you off in a cute little fashion. Benedictions are part of a worship service, get this, that remind us that we are blessed in God. Benedictions are part of the worship service that remind us of God's promises to us. They're not mere words, friends. It's God pronouncing his blessing upon his people and therefore his people are blessed. No, that's why we end our benedictions from God's, with God's word. That's why I'll often tell you where it's coming from, because I want you to know the blessing isn't from Aaron. The blessing is from God. It's from God's word. God is, God is pronouncing his blessing upon his people. And if God says it, guess what? We can believe it. If God pronounces his blessing on you, you can believe it. And that's exactly what was taking place as Jesus was with his disciples there at the Mount of Olives as he was teaching them and they were worshiping him. And as all that occurred, Jesus raises his hands and he pronounces blessing upon his disciples. Jesus is blessing them with the assurance of the power for their mission. Jesus is guaranteeing them success. He's telling them their mission will be successful. He's pronouncing his blessing and offering assurance to his disciples. Now, as Jesus was doing this, something else takes place. As Jesus is pronouncing his benediction with hands raised, and as he speaks the promise of God upon his people, as he's doing that, we're told back in Luke chapter 24, verse 51, that he was lifted up. Friends, what a powerful scene. I hope you get chills just thinking about it. They're gathered there with the resurrected Christ. He's pronouncing blessing on them, and as he's doing this, he is being lifted up and taken into heaven. This is an astounding situation. And what this ultimately says is the ascension is an important historical event. 
It's so important that the Apostles' Creed, that teaching which summarizes the teaching of the Apostles, actually contains it. See, there's few words in the Apostles' Creed. You you know what it is because we say it whenever we do the Lord's Supper. It's a historic creed which shares the orthodox teaching, the historic teaching of the church. Not just Presbyterians, but also Lutherans and and also Anglicans. They, They say it. Methodists say it. Baptists say it. We say it together as we're united in the historic teaching of the, of the church. And there's few words that are there. So any words that are there are really important. And here are just a few words, a few lines from that historic statement. Listen to this. Two words. He ascended. They thought it's so important for you to know that Jesus ascended. It was an important historic fact that changed everything. Well, what was it about Jesus ascending? Well, here's a few facts that if you're a note taker, you might want to write down. The ascension declares first the glorification of Christ following his humiliation. When I say humiliation, remember God took on human flesh. Jesus experienced thirst. Jesus experienced hungry, to get hungry. Jesus experienced what it was to get tired. Jesus experienced rejection. Jesus experienced death as Lazarus, his friend, died and he wept. Jesus, in every way, experienced what it was to be a man, yet he was a man without sin. He, he, was, he was called to obey the law perfectly. Jesus experienced the excruciating death on a cross he didn't deserve. God himself was humbled in so many ways for us. And the ceiling on that was he was buried and laid in a tomb for three days, dead. God, for us. But then, his resurrection. But then, now, his ascension. You see, this is an important point because Jesus is glorified. See, it's in the ascension, number two, His deity is recognized. He is going to the place he belongs as God. He is triumphal return to heaven. And one day he will return from heaven to judge the world. But now he was going back to heaven where he came from. And church, I ask you this question. Do you truly understand the importance of this event? I don't think many of us do. I think we say it in the Apostles' Creed. I think we we acknowledge Jesus ascended, but it's kind of like just an afterthought. And what we're learning here is that this is an important theological truth. Jesus ascended changes things. I like what Phil Riken says. He reminds us, even the joys of Easter Sunday, they're surpassed by the glories of the ascension. And we think, What? Isn't the resurrection like the the most glorious thing? Riken says, no, actually the ascension is. That Jesus was taken back into heaven to his rightful seat where he would sit at the right hand of the Father and judge the world. That's where he belongs. Number three, the ascension is where Christ is receiving his glory as he marks the consummation, the end of his earthly work. And ultimately, he takes his seat next to the Father at his right hand. We learn that in places like 1 Peter 3 and Psalms 110, where Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, showing his authority, making his enemies his footstool. 
Or how about number four? The ascension means that we hear this church. We who are in Christ, this is a select group, those who truly are believers in Christ. For us, the ascension means that we're seated with him. That, that Christ, the God-man, represents us in heaven. That Jesus is making intercession for you and for me. That's astounding that we who sin, we who spit in the face of God with our repetition disobedience, that we're represented in the, in the, key, the throne room of God, that Jesus Christ sitting there is our intercessor, making intercession for us, for our denial, for our sins, for our lies, for all of our wickedness. One theologian, an old dead guy, you guys need to learn his name, Francis Turretin. Francis Turretin says this. He says, in this ascension, the divine descended, remember, but now the human ascend. We're represented in heaven because Christ is now at the right hand of the Father and Christ is the God-man. He never let go of his humanity. That's why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is so important. Jesus now represents us in the flesh, in heaven. For the first time, man is in heaven in a bodily form. And there he is representing us. Friends, the ascension means a lot, theologically. The ascension means everything changed. And while all this is going on, I want you to see the response of the disciples. Look at verses 52 and 53 of Luke 24. What did they do? They continued to worship. Of course they did. What else could they do? I mean, something amazing just took place. They've been there with the, the risen Lord and learning from him. He just pronounced benediction, blessing on them, and then they watch him go up. What can they do? What is the appropriate response? Well, let's hear it. It says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So grand was the ascension that all they could do was continue to worship. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had the experience leaving a worship service, you just continue on your way home praising God? You just continue singing and continue just, I want to read scripture, I want to pray, I want more. Their joy produced an irresistible longing to continue to praise God. Now here's the thing. They were actually praising Jesus. This is important because these monotheistic Jews, these Jews who believed in only one God, for the first time right now, we see them doing something astounding. They're praising Jesus as God. They're recognizing his deity completely. They had their doubts. They had their concerns. They had their kind of questions. But now they're going, whoa, we really know who he is because we understand where he is going. They truly believed Jesus was God. They were acknowledging Jesus as the God-man. And here's the point, friends. Jesus brought them joy, it says. Jesus brought them joy. Too many of us in our religion, we're, we're, we're miserable. You can see it in the way we sing. You can see it in the way we do our devotions. You can see it in the way we carry ourselves in the world. We act like this 
idea of being a Christian is a burden. It's not a burden, friends. It's a delight. It's a joy to be a Christian, to be one whom Christ bled and died for, one who is represented in the throne room of God, one who is being made an intercession for because you're loved so incredibly much. But unfortunately, sometimes familiarity brings comfort. And this allows us to miss the truths, the key truths that are before us, doesn't it? These men had been with Jesus every day for the last three and a half years. They had been under his teaching, they had seen his miracles, yet they were afraid when the resurrected Christ appeared. But now something had changed. Now they were really celebrating him because they truly understood who he is and why he came. But what about you? How easy it is for those of us who grew up in the church or those of us who've been under the preached word for a long time, we've become comfortable with the words like gospel, sin, and forgiveness. We begin to ignore the the radicalness of one who's been redeemed. See, the question is, does it bring you joy when you think about the truth of Jesus? It should. Friend, if you really know Jesus... You should be celebrating. And that's exactly what these men did. They continued to worship. Look at verse 53. It says, They even met in the temple blessing God. So it wasn't just that day they went home in their car and turned on a couple of Christian tunes and sang as they went home. It's not just they got home and, and prayed. It wasn't even just that they got up and did their devotions really excited because they got back from camp, you know, their, their, their spiritual retreat. It was actually, this was their way of life for a period of time that they gathered in the temple and they continued blessing God. Let me remind you about this temple. This temple is where Jesus was brought as a child. This is where Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was given a prophecy about the Messiah and the forerunner. This is where Simeon and Anna celebrated the promised Messiah. This is the temple also where Jesus had to cleanse it, cleanse it not once but twice and it needed constant purging because of the wickedness that was there. This was the very place where the wicked high priest who had crucified Jesus was ministering. This was the very place Jesus said would be destroyed pointing to 70 AD. And yet this is the place where the disciples worshipped Jesus. Friends, this is an important message for each of us. Church is messy. Church isn't perfect. The people here aren't perfect. But we're not worshiping them, and we're not worshiping a system. We're worshiping Jesus. That's why we gather. So I ask you this morning, is your focus Jesus? Do you know his power? Are you excited about his glory and him receiving all the glory to his name? Do you know the joy he should bring you? Does he bring you joy? Do you know of the grace and the forgiveness that's only found in him? In church, we see that this group of disciples, they could not contain their worship of Jesus, and neither should we. These disciples worshiped in faith, waiting in Jerusalem, just like they were told, and their obedience is seen. Their faith is seen in their obedience. They're trusting the promise of the power to come that Jesus said. They believed everything Jesus said, and they were worshiping and trusting in him. 
And one of the things Jesus made known to them back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was the extent of the mission. Listen to what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And here it is. And to the utter ends of the earth. This is the point. Power was assured in the ascension. And Jesus was taken up. And this kingdom power would come and enable them to fulfill their mission. That power is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't just be changing Jerusalem. He wouldn't just be changing the temple. He would be changing the world through them. And how would he do this? Well, it would mean that they would face persecution as his witnesses. That's why it's the same biblical word. But the Holy Spirit would strengthen them. They would be strengthened to change the world. And at the same time, when the Holy Spirit comes, that same Holy Spirit is the same one who changes us today. For without the Spirit, none of us could believe. For without the Holy Spirit, none of us could confess. Without the Holy Spirit, none of us could truly know Jesus. This same Holy Spirit who was promised to come to them is the same Holy Spirit who's come to us. This is the same truth for all time, including even for our Old Testament saints. Friends, don't think the Old Testament saints got saved any other way. It was the Holy Spirit who worked in them. We see in the Old Testament all the same miracles we see in the New Testament. Dead bodies were raised. We see prophecies. We see gifts given for ministry. We see all the same abilities and all the same things. And so one might ask, what was the difference then? between what they had in the Old Testament and what they're going to have when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. What is the difference? I'm glad you asked. And so was my friend B.B. Warfield. He says this. It did not mean in the, that the Spirit was not active in the Old Testament, the fact that Jesus told them to wait for the power. For the Old Testament, here's one point. The Old Testament was a preparatory time and must be strictly conceived as such. So all the things there were done, and all the same miracles were performed, but they were performed in a limited way. And yet, in the New Testament, after the Holy Spirit comes, this is the key. This is what Warfield says. In one word, the Old Testament was a day in which the Spirit restrained His power. But now, the great day of the Spirit has come. He's saying, now the Spirit's power is outpoured. I mean, isn't that, after all, what Moses ultimately prayed in Numbers? I wish the Spirit would just come on all of you. That was when he was confronted and people said, you know, how come you're in charge? Or how come, how come you, you're allowing certain people to be in charge? We, shouldn't we be in charge? And he said, I wish the Holy Spirit would come on you. Guess what? That was what the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit was. The, the priesthood of believers the ministry of the saints, the, the fact that we've all been called to be on mission and we are all his witnesses. That's the promise, prophecy in Joel that would be upon your sons and daughters. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit released upon man, woman, and even child. And yet we see in all of this something pretty amazing. I want you to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 10. This goes back to as they, were, as they were watching Jesus go up, as they were watching the ascension happen. 
As they were gazing, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Anybody want to guess who they were? Angels. And they said, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. You know what they're really saying? Let me tell you. Get busy. (laughs) Quit standing around. You got a mission to do. Get back to Jerusalem. See, the angels were saying, you need to get ready to get to work. And guess what? The message for you today is get to work. Get to work being on mission. You've been clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The ascension of Jesus changes everything. The Jesus pronounced benediction blessing upon his church each and every Sunday. That same thing occurs at the end of the service as we pronounce the blessings of God upon you. You are not weak. You are not powerless. You're powerful. You're powerful in the name of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who makes our work effective. I mean, in all likelihood, these men didn't change. They were still fishermen by nature, many of them unlearned. And yet God used them to change the world. Too many of us think that something has to happen in us on the outside when reality is it's about what God's doing on the inside. God uses his people to change the world. God's using you. He's placed you in the place of work. He's placed you. He's placed you in the family. He's placed you in the neighborhood so that you can be on mission for him. All of us are called to be his witnesses. All of us who are truly in Christ have been clothed in power. We have been called here to get busy. Get busy reminding ourselves that we're not powerless. We're powerful in Christ. So let me just summarize all this with this. Friends, the ascension of Jesus Christ means the forgiveness of your sins. As we who are in Christ sit with him at the right hand of the Father. Friends, the ascension of Jesus Christ guarantees the effectiveness of your evangelism. And the ultimate triumph of the gospel around the world for the ascension of Jesus to heaven means that Jesus sent us the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The ascension means that Jesus is closer to us than ever, for the Spirit of Christ lives in you. The ascension is the promise of our own exaltation and the reality that we will all be in the presence of God. Not when we go up there, but ultimately when heaven comes down here. So church, I ask you, why are your eyes focused up there when he's called us to get to work? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from this text, God, we we be encouraged and strengthened with the hope of the good news of Jesus. May we remember that we have been left here to be your witnesses, that we are uh, to be on mission, that we have been given a great commission. Lord, help us to teach and to preach and to see many baptized in the name of Christ so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.